Hello and welcome back to Rock Band's podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Malaberti. I say this every week, but I think we have a really special episode today in Beatles Part 8. Uh, it's really interesting because I think this is kind of the beginning of the end um, of the Beatles as we've come to know them through 1967. There gets to be a lot more division within the band, you'll see why, as well as some pretty substantial business matters that begin to take up a lot of the band's attention. Now, the Beatles, spoiler alert, break up in 1969, and this episode takes place in 68. So, of course, we're starting to come to the end of this season. Not to worry, though, the last year, year and a half of the band's history is so detailed and interesting that we definitely have a few more Beatles episodes in us. Hopefully, they're going to be the most interesting episodes of the season. And I'm going to ask you all on Friday morning at 8 a.m. on my Instagram story whether or not you want to keep going with the Beatles through their breakup and tell the story of their solo careers, or if you want me to move on to the next band, in which case I'll do the big reveal sometime in the coming weeks. Now, personally, I think the Beatles' solo careers, you know, imagine uh, All Things Must Pass, Patty Boyd and Eric Clapton, Wings. I think we have a lot of interesting content there, and it won't be that many more episodes, so I think it would make sense to keep it going a bit, but it's up to you all. Tomorrow morning, don't miss my Instagram story uh, where I ask you if you want to keep going or if you want to start a new band. All right. I bring you all Rock Band's podcast, Beatles Part 8. The Beatles had promised the Maharishi that they would visit him in India to learn transcendental meditation. Unfortunately, their first attempt was cut short after the sudden and tragic death of their longtime manager and dear friend, Brian Epstein, in the summer of 1967. So they committed to going to India in the February of 1968 to visit the Maharishi. Brian Epstein's death had left the Beatles organization in a bit of chaos. A lot of Brian Epstein's faulty business decisions were discovered. The Beatles were not really making as much money as they could have been. Not to mention there was a leadership vacuum, not only within the band, but the actual replacement of Brian Epstein. Brian's replacement could have been his assistant, Peter Brown, the band's publisher, Derek Taylor, Brian's brother and Neil Aspinall were mentioned, but in the end, the Beatles decided to temporarily work without a manager. They would manage themselves. Now, there was a definite feeling in the Beatles that an era had ended. The guy that they used to rely on so much to get them out of sticky situations was gone, and now they kind of had to grow up a bit, and they had to get more serious about the business decisions that they were making. This kind of started with their first project after Brian's death, Magical Mystery Tour, and the Beatles were also in the middle of building a new company, Apple Corps, which I will definitely be talking about later in the episode. After the holidays, the Beatles were back in the studio to record some material that they'd release when they were in India. The record company was a little frustrated because the Beatles were not really being open with them about how long they planned on staying in India. Apparently, George and John reportedly said, and not entirely jokingly, that maybe they'd stay in India forever. In the studio, they finished up Paul's Lady Madonna, which was stylistically kind of like a pepper song, and George Martin thought it was a really strong song and planned on releasing it as a single. The B-side was to be George Harrison's The Inner Light, which was another classical Indian-style song, and George's first composition to appear on a Beatles single. George was actually recording something of a solo album at the time. Uh, he had hi- he'd been hired to make a soundtrack for the film Wonderwall, and he spent a lot of his time in the winter of 67-68 
working out psychedelic Indian music for the film, recording it in Bombay and in London. The soundtrack was called Wonderwall Music, and it was released in the fall of 1968 and was one of the first projects that was recorded by a solo Beatle. Just a few days before they left for India, they recorded a really rocking number, John Lennon's Hey Bulldog. This is a really great Beatles song. It has a biting guitar riff and piercing guitar solo played by George, and an awesome trademark bass line by Paul, and really some exceptional hard rock drums by Ringo. The band had a ton of fun with it, and it was really an example of the Beatles as a strong rock band, maybe uh, kind of at their best. It might not be the best song musically, but the camaraderie within the band was really something. John and Paul were even having a blast barking at the end of the song. John wanted Hey Bulldog to actually replace Lady Madonna as the lead single, but they decided that they'd bookmark the track for their film Yellow Submarine, which was another reluctant film project that they had coming down the pipe. George and John, along with their wives, Patty and Cynthia, arrived in New Delhi, India in mid-February of 1968, before traveling to Rishikesh, which was 200 miles north of the capital in the foothills of the Himalaya Mountains. In Rishikesh, which is a hugely important city in the Hindu religion and philosophy, being the birthplace of yoga, they went to the Maharishi's ashram, where he was conducting a transcendental meditation teacher training. Paul and his girlfriend Jane Asher and Ringo and his wife Maureen Starkey arrived in Rishikesh just a few days later and met up with the other half of their band at the ashram. Also at the ashram were about 60 other people, including staff, students, and a really star-studded gang. In addition to the Beatles and Neil Aspinall, uh, a member of the Beatles' entourage called Magic Alex, who was becoming more involved in the Beatles scene, and who we'll talk about in a bit more depth, were there. There were also famous musicians there, like Mike Love from the Beach Boys, Donovan, the singer-songwriter, was there, Actress Mia Farrow and her two siblings were there. Model Jenny Boyd, who was Patty Boyd's sister, also came along, and she was apparently grieving the breakup of her on-again, off-again boyfriend, Mick Fleetwood of Fleetwood Mac. The ashram was private, and it cost each Beatles, Beatle a week's wage to stay there. In exchange, they got a fairly comfortable environment to stay. They had running water and plumbing, and they all got their own rooms. They wore white, airy linen clothing. They were fed homemade vegetarian cuisine, and it was an all-around beautiful place to stay. There were birds and monkeys and pretty large amount of spiders and bugs and flies. The reason they were there, though, was not just to vacation, but it was to learn how to meditate. All four Beatles and their wives were interested in meditation to a certain degree. They were all searching for spirituality after their years of acid use, and uh, the promises of meditation seemed pretty amazing. Focus, fulfillment, understanding, compassion, oneness, these were all kind of the promises of meditation. Plus, Indian and Eastern spirituality was really popular at this time in the West. It was, you know, peak psychedelia, and people were just fascinating with these types of cultures. The practice of transcendental meditation, or TM, is centered around a mantra. Essentially, the Maharishi gave each student a mantra, which is just a word or a phrase with some spiritual meaning, and to 
each student, it's a sacred word, and the student would repeat the mantra over and over again in their head, completely emptying their minds and just allowing the mantra to wash over them. And through this meditation, one strives to find inner peace. George and John, however, were by far the most interested in meditation. They weren't satisfied with just being rich or famous. They wanted a deeper fulfillment. George had been craving spirituality and direction for some time. In an interview in 1967, he said, quote, By having the money, we found that money wasn't the answer. Because we had lots of material things that people sort of spend their whole life trying to get, we managed to get them at quite an early age. And it was good, really, because we learned that that wasn't it. We still lacked something. And that something is the thing that religion is trying to give to people, unquote. George and Patty were really committed to just learning and taking in the whole philosophy and practice of meditation, but John was more focused on trying to find the meaning of life. He was always saying that they were there to find the answer, and he was convinced that the Maharishi was going to say something, or that he, if he meditated enough, he would find out the big answer. What is the point of life? For a while, this really worked for them. I mean, Cynthia Lennon said, quote, John and George were in their element. They threw themselves totally in the Maharishi's teachings, and above all, they had found peace of mind that had been denied them for so long, unquote. Paul and Ringo were less zealous about meditation, but they were interested in the practice nonetheless. The ashram was pretty free and easygoing. There weren't many requirements or rules. Um, There wasn't much, much structure. The day started with an early morning meditation and then a communal breakfast. Then maybe the Maharishi would do a lecture about Hindu philosophy or talk individually with some of his students. The afternoon was usually pretty open, and of course, there was dinner and meditations and lectures scattered throughout the day. The Beatles took their guru pretty seriously, but the Beatles were still the the Beatles. They were witty, and they loved to joke around, and they weren't opposed to sometimes poking fun at the Maharishi either. George took to calling the Maharishi the big M behind his back, and John allegedly one time patted the Maharishi on the back after a bit of an awkward silence and said, quote, there's a good little guru, unquote. The overall vibe was really relaxed and easygoing, and the morale in the band was high. A lot of time was spent relaxing, joking, and even in competition to see who could meditate the longest. The ashram was supposed to be clean, meaning no drugs, and for the most part, people obliged. No alcohol or LSD was really used at the ashram. Uh, However, people snuck in cigarettes, marijuana, and hashish, uh, which was used pretty much by everyone except for the staff and the Maharishi. And for a short while, John and George, who were really trying to stay clean and focus only on meditation, would kind of criticize the people who partook, although I think after a while, they began to relent. The time in Rishikesh was also important because never did the Beatles write more songs in such a short period of time. John, Paul, and George all brought along acoustic guitars and spent a lot of time strumming, jamming, and writing lyrics. George was less focused on writing. He preferred to play the sitar during this period and was spending more time meditating and thinking about uh, the teachings that they were supposed to be taking in. A lot of the songs that they wrote were quite simple and lyrically based on the goings-on at the ashram. For example, the Maharishi gave a lecture about nature's children and the importance of being connected and one with those around you and the earth, which influenced Paul to write the song Mother Nature's Son and John to write Child of Nature, which would later become Jealous Guy. 
The continuing story of Bungalow Bill was a song written by John about a student at the ashram who, along with some other tourists and his mother, went tiger hunting while riding through the jungle on elephants. They were attacked by the tiger, and the subject of the song quickly shot and killed this tiger. When he got back, he was met with scorn uh, about his killing of the tiger, and the Maharishi condemned him for a, quote, life destruction. John's lyrics reflect the incident pretty much exactly. Paul, with his acoustic, wrote classics like Blackbird, which is one of his best songs ever, Rocky Raccoon, and I Will. George wrote Long, Long, Long and Circles, which would be featured on one of his solo albums. And probably most famously, George unofficially co-wrote Donovan's hit Hurdy Gurdy Man while in Rishikesh. Ringo even finished writing his first song, Don't Pass Me By, which was a tune he'd been working on since the early days of the Beatles. Fun fact about Don't Pass Me By, George Harrison later showed the members of the uh, Canadian-American band, The Band, the White Album, and they all unanimously agreed that Don't Pass Me By was their favorite tune on the album. Donovan actually showed John Lennon uh, and the other Beatles a finger-picking technique, which you can hear on the Lennon song Julia, uh, which is half love song, half tribute to his mother, and Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence, uh, which was written about Prudence Farrow, Mia's sister, who was apparently meditating all day every day and not hanging out with the rest of the gang. Famously, John wrote the song for her, you know, Dear Prudence, Won't You Come Out to Play, and the Beatles actually performed the song outside of her bungalow, and Prudence apparently relented and came out and hung out with the rest of the band. Apparently, this was a beautiful moment, and it's one that uh, everyone kind of holds on to as a fond memory. After just 10 days at the ashram, Ringo and his wife decided to go home. They had a nice time in Rishikesh, but they missed their young kids, and Maureen hated the flies and the spiders that were all over the place. Ringo also had these weird stomach problems in India. Uh, He had a lot of stomach problems throughout his life. He had his appendix removed and a whole bunch of other problems, and as a result, he spent a lot of time in the hospital as a kid, so he couldn't really digest spicy food properly. As a result, the whole time when everyone was eating, you know, exotic vegetarian Indian cuisine, Ringo stuck to eggs and Heinz baked beans, which he had brought from home. Paul and Jane left a few weeks after Ringo. Paul was eager to get back to England to deal with the launch of Apple Corps, and he started getting to get the ball rolling on the next Beatles album. Paul was the most focused on the Beatles business, and he was often talking about the songs he was writing, the next album, what they were going to do when they got back to the UK, instead of being focused on the teachings of the Maharishi. Paul said of this, quote, George actually got quite annoyed and told me off because I was trying to think of the next album. He said, we're not fucking here to do the next album. We're here to meditate. It was like, oh, excuse me for breathing. You know, George was quite strict about that, unquote. Reportedly, John and George were pretty upset with Paul for leaving and not taking meditation and their spiritual journey seriously enough. John and George stayed in India for weeks longer. Uh, They made meditation their priority. They kept listening to the Maharishi, uh, writing, and so on. John's writing was often influenced by the way he was feeling at the ashram. A lot of the time, John was having a good time, but he was also very lonely, anxious, and had a lot of trouble sleeping. He even claimed to be suicidal at points. 
He wrote songs like I'm So Tired and Your Blues, which are not happy songs, about this part of his Rishikesh experience. Lennon said of this, quote, I couldn't sleep and I was hallucinating like crazy, having dreams where I could smell. The funny thing about the camp was that although it was very beautiful and I was meditating about eight hours a day, I was writing the most miserable songs on earth. In Year Blues, when I wrote, I'm so lonely I want to die, I wasn't kidding. That's how I felt up there, trying to reach God and feeling suicidal, unquote. A lot of this was probably to do with his unhappy marriage and his growing impatience with not finding out the answer to life. This wasn't helped by the fact that Yoko Ono had begun creeping into his life and was frequently sending him postcards to the ashram with little messages saying, when you see a cloud, think of me. John had met Yoko in 1967, and the two continued to cross paths in the art world, and John even funded some of her projects. It was no secret that a chemistry had developed between the two, and while the two were still just friends, they were corresponding in a very flirtatious and romantic way. John had allegedly even tried to get Yoko Ono to come to India with the group, but this was rejected pretty flatly by the rest of the Beatles. They thought it would be unnecessary and it would make things awkward with Cynthia. John and Cynthia, however, didn't have a horrible time together in Rishikesh. Cynthia felt that the two were communicating again, and she thought that anything that might help John get off drugs was worth a shot. The two shared a room for a bit, but then John decided to find a new room so he could better focus on meditation. This wasn't out of the blue. Even Patty and George decided to do the same thing. It was just kind of what you did at the ashram. John also became wary of the Maharishi, and he began to have his doubts as the weeks went by. He didn't like how the guru was so interested in public relations and always wanted to be recognized as the Beatles guru, staging photo op after photo op. The Maharishi also point-blank asked the Beatles to donate huge portions of their profit, but was refused. John was also fed up with not finding the answer to life and began to question whether the Maharishi was all that he was cracked up to be. But perhaps most importantly, it seems that John was eager to get back to London to see Yoko Ono. The final straw came when a rumor began to circulate around the ashram that the Maharishi who was celibate had acted inappropriately toward a young female student. I don't know if these claims are true, it wouldn't shock me, but I don't believe that there were any other accusations like this against the Maharishi, and George Harrison later said that they jumped to conclusions and didn't treat him fairly or honestly. Either way, this accusation infuriated both George and John, and they quickly rushed to the Maharishi's bungalow to explain the situation. John recalled this moment in a later interview saying, quote, I said, we're leaving, and the Maharishi said, why? I said, well, if you're so cosmic, you should know why, because all his right-hand men were always intimating that he could do miracles. He said, I don't know why, you must tell me. And I just kept saying, you ought to know. He then gave me a look like, I'll kill you, you bastard, unquote. Just like that, the two remaining Beatles and their wives rushed to get their stuff together and left Rishikesh and the Maharishi behind in April of 1968, after over 50 days of practicing meditation there. In one final burst of creativity, John penned a song about the Maharishi, showing an anger and a rage in him that hadn't really been there through his acid years. He wrote the opening lyric, Maharishi, you effing see, you made a fool of everyone. At George's urging, John changed the lyrics to, Sexy Sadie, what have you done? You made a fool of everyone. This rage would now be a feature of John Lennon's personality. 
And the final two Beatles returned to London with more songs than they knew what to do with. When they returned, John publicly cut ties with the Maharishi, which was a departure from the praise the Maharishi got from Ringo and Paul when they returned. John didn't really make a big public fuss, but it was clear that the Beatles were no longer associated with their former guru. John said, quote, We made a mistake out there. We thought the Maharishi was something other than he was. Unquote. This comment pretty much obliterated the Maharishi's standing in the West, but amazingly, the press didn't really care about the Beatles' time in India. I think there was a general boredom uh, with the whole story. Nobody thought it was that interesting. In fact, I think a lot of people just didn't get it or didn't want to get it. Like George's Indian music, they kind of just didn't vibe with it. So the Beatles' trip to India was kind of overlooked by the press, and the Maharishi was pretty much forgotten in the West. It didn't really matter because impatiently awaiting the Beatles' return from India was their new company, Apple Corps, named after one of Paul's puns. Core is spelled C-O-R-P-S, corporation. Before Brian Epstein died, the band replaced their original company, Beatles Limited, with Beatles and Company, so they could rearrange their profits and claim a lower tax rate. Brian thought the best move was to make Beatle and Company an actual company and wanted to use it to buy record stores or even clothing stores so the band could kind of diversify their business portfolio. The band rejected the idea, but their wheels started turning. They wanted to create a company that would bypass traditional power brokers in the entertainment industry, uh, record labels, film production companies, etc., and make a company that would help artists distribute their art so artists could maximize artistic freedom and minimize the intrusion of commercial entities. Kind of like the Beatles were able to do uh, on Sgt. Pepper, but for the little guy. I mean, the Beatles had complete artistic control uh, in Sgt. Pepper, and they kind of told the record company what they were going to do. Apple Corps would fund films, visual arts, electronics, and of course music. The Apple recording division, Apple Records, would sign artists in hopes to find talent that may have been overlooked by big companies. Uh, you know, their biggest sign would be the Beatles, of course, though EMI, Parlophone, and Capital would still own the rights to Beatles music until 1976. If Apple sounds both naive and overly complicated, that's because it was. Just before the launch of Apple, Paul described it as, quote, a beautiful place where you can buy beautiful things, a controlled weirdness, a kind of Western communism. And it's just trying to mix business with enjoyment. We're in the happy position of not needing any more money. So for this time, the bosses aren't in it for profit. We've already bought all our dreams. We want to share that possibility with others, unquote. John Lennon also commented on the philosophy behind Apple, saying, quote, It's a company we're setting up involving records, films, and electronics, and as a sideline, manufacturing or whatever. We want to set up a system where people who just want to make a film about anything don't have to get on their knees in somebody's office, unquote. So essentially, the Beatles were creating a huge entertainment company that was different from the big names that ruled the industry and also rivaling them. It actually wasn't a horrible idea, though. It probably caused the band more stress than it was worth. Uh, you can imagine just the insane complexities involved in making a company of this size and scope. I mean, just the complex copyright law involved in the Beatles being owned by EMI but being signed by their new company, Apple. I mean, it's a massive headache, and it was just pretty much 
constantly a massive headache. The problem was usually Brian Epstein would manage this side of things for the Beatles. And it's a shame because he probably would have deeply enjoyed a project of this importance. Uh, the Beatles' first big mistake though was to not hire anyone to fill Epstein's role and to manage Apple themselves. Fundamentally, this is a problem that Apple had in the early days. They were managed by four people who were not businessmen, who in fact were incredibly bored by business to certain degrees. Even Paul, who was the most interested in business, was pretty bored by it. Uh, and they were creating a company with an overly idealistic philosophy. After a few months, they gave Neil Aspinall the gig to temporarily run Apple, and Apple did have some success, not nearly on the scale or in the way the Beatles imagined, but this business would pretty much be a constant feature throughout the end of the band, and in 1968, it was really just the beginning of it. So we'll talk more about Apple in the coming episodes. One of the most significant events in the history of the Beatles had nothing to do with music or even business, but it was the official beginning of John Lennon's relationship with Yoko Ono. When John and Cynthia got back from India in the April of 68, they of course were reunited with their son, Julian, who was absolutely ecstatic to see his parents, and for a brief moment, I mean just a few days, they were kind of a happy little family. This was kind of an odd moment because on the plane ride back from Rishikesh, a drunk John Lennon detailed all of the infidelities that he had since the two had been married to Cynthia. This was a pretty long list considering his days on the road with the Beatles. I don't know why John did this, the explanation is unclear. Maybe he was interested in opening a new, more honest chapter in his marriage, or maybe he was trying to get Cynthia to divorce him. Maybe he was just being a drunk jerk, that's always a possibility. Pretty quickly after they returned, John went to New York with Paul and Cynthia went to Greece. John got back to England a few days before Cynthia and out of boredom, loneliness, love, who knows, he called Yoko Ono, who came over to John's late at night. Now again, the pair were communicating and they had some professional links as well. And John was definitely very intrigued by the strange, confident artist. Yoko was also thinking a lot about John. She was an ambitious person, and I think she saw an opportunity in John. It's probably not accurate at this point to say that either of them were in love with each other, but rather they were just very interested in each other and kind of very flirtatious towards each other. However, both of them were married with children. John had Cynthia and Julian, and Yoko was with entertainment promoter Tony Cox and had a daughter, Kyoko. The night got off to a somewhat awkward start, but John eventually showed Yoko some tapes of some of the weird music he was making. Yoko suggested that they make their own album, so they spent the next few hours making the album Two Virgins. Of the night, John said, quote, It was midnight when we started. It was dawn when we ended. We made love at dawn. It was very beautiful, unquote. The cover of Two Virgins was a photo of John and Yoko uh, standing side by side naked, and it was released on Apple. Honestly, the album itself is pretty horrible. It's just unpleasant noise, sound effects, screaming and stuff. Not musical in almost any way. If somebody out there has listened to the entire album, you are Beatles fan of the century. Cynthia, unfortunately, arrived back at uh, the Lennon Mansion in Weybridge a few days earlier with Jenny Boyd uh, and Magic Alex to find John and Yoko seated on the floor together in their bathrobes. Apparently, they're staring into each other's eyes. 
John acted as if nothing was happening out of the ordinary, but Cynthia was devastated. She immediately left and spent a few days away from John. When Cynthia returned, Yoko was gone, and John acted like nothing happened, kind of gaslighting her a bit. More confusingly, John pleaded with Cynthia to not let the affair bother her because he said that his affair with Yoko meant nothing to him and that he still loved her and wanted to be with her. Cynthia said that John said to her that day, quote, it's you I love, Sin. I love you now more than ever before, unquote. Even though Cynthia was in shock from what had happened, she had been suspicious of John's interest in Yoko for some time. So she decided to leave for a brief vacation in Italy, bringing her mother and Julian along. The day of Cynthia's departure, Yoko and her daughter moved into Weybridge with John, and the two appeared together in public for the first time at an Apple launch event. The press reacted by printing headlines about how Beatle John had left his wife and was now with artist Yoko Ono. All of this, tragically, was not known to Cynthia, who didn't have access to the British tabloid press in Italy. As far as she knew, she was on the road to fixing her marriage, and Yoko Ono was just another meaningless girl that John uh, hooked up with. That was until Magic Alex came to Italy and informed her that John was going to divorce her. When Cynthia returned home, John refused to meet with her alone. Instead, John and Yoko, wearing matching clothes and holding hands, told Cynthia that their marriage was over and that they were in love. And just like that, the story of Cynthia and John was over. Cynthia was the first victim of the inseparable John and Yoko. However, she wouldn't be the last. In the following year, rarely was John Lennon seen without Yoko Ono by his side, in public or in the studio. There were now effectively five Beatles. The no wives involved in Beatles business rule, practiced for years, was now replaced with Yoko is part of the band whether you like it or not. And things started to get a bit too crowded in the Beatles as they had to start adjusting to life with John and Yoko. Thanks so much for listening to Rock Band's podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. Next week, we're going to talk more about the ballad of John and Yoko, Apple, and the recording of the epic self-titled double album known as the White Album. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Follow us on Instagram at Rock Band's Podcast and share us with all of your rock and roll loving friends. Until next week, listen to the White Album.